0: So uh, I mentioned that I have been in Malawi. Some of you are probably like, "Where is that?" Malawi um, is uh, kind of southeast Africa. It's uh, Tanzania to the to the north, uh, Zambia to the west, and then it's kind of surrounded at the on the on the east and around the bottom by Mozambique. And so it is a a kind of a small country, but it's a very populated country. And so um, anywhere I, I went, it, it may look like, oh, there's nobody around. And then the next thing you know, there comes somebody. And you're like, oh, there's people here. Uh, there are people everywhere. And it's a lot of uh, small villages. And in those villages, uh, most people live in these kind of small, um, handmade kind of brick houses, a lot of them dirt floors, uh, tin roof, maybe even some straw, straw roofs. And um, man, the, the average person in Malawi lives on two to three dollars a day um, and so it, it's a it's you know it's a interesting country and um, it's it's nine hours ahead so right now my stomach is saying it's dinner time and so I'm hungry and so if I steal your food and eat it my apologies but I'm like like rabid hungry and man um, I haven't slept well got home Friday night about seven or eight o'clock and both nights that I went to bed I woke up at 11:30. And uh, no joke, like, oh, I'm awake, and so um, I've really been awake since like two, and so um, if I fall asleep pre mid-sermon, you know, I just needed my nap, so just just bear, bear with me, but um, you know, I had a, I had a, a, a as far as ministry is concerned, I would say a very profitable week. I, I trained uh, two different groups of pastors. Um, one one group it was in Zomba, Malawi, and the second group was what's in an area, it's a, a region called the Lower. Uh, we would we would read it and think it's the Lower Shire, but they say the Lower Shire. Um, one is about three thousand feet above sea level; the other is three hundred feet above sea level. So when I was down at low, it was about ninety-five degrees during the day when I was preaching, and um, it was glorious not to be in the cold. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of looked and saw that it was 60 here last week, and so bad timing, bad timing, but I um, was able to train two groups of pastors, and uh, if you think 140 pastors, if their average church size was 50 people, these village churches, that, that means our church had an impact on about 7,000 lives last week. That's the be- the beauty of multiplication, right? And so... I went and I taught discipleship, um, and some of the same stuff that I teach here in our servant leadership cohort, some of the same stuff that Jason taught last week in Discipleship 101 and, and 201, uh, and it's things that I'm passionate about, something that, uh, man, I, I believe that this is the one of the calls of the Great Commission is to make disciples, um, and so it was good to be there. But but if, if you followed along, and some of you are friends, friends with me on Facebook or Instagram and you saw it. You saw the highlight reel, right? That's what we put on social media. We put the highlight reel, and there are parts of the trip that were hard, and parts that were not comfortable by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm like this uh, uh, guy who I can handle uh, rough circumstances as long as my wife is close by. You know, like I'm, and uh, my wife and my kids, and like they're not there, and I'm trying to FaceTime with them. I having to get up at 4.30 in the morning at 5 so that I can uh, FaceTime with them a few minutes before they go to bed, and then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for a few minutes at 7 a.m. here when they're getting ready to go to school, you know, and, man, there's there's sleep issues, uh, there's heat issues, there's food issues that cause stomach issues, that cause other issues, right? You know, there's like things that just aren't comfortable. There's hard realities to deal with when, you're, when you are coming from this cushy uh, place in the Western world, and you're seeing hard life, you know, there's like a, there's a toll that that takes on you, right? And so, man, um, missions aren't easy, but you know what's way, way harder than doing a short term mission trip? Long term missions, right? And so I I sat with my college buddy, Josh Hutchins, and his wife, Stacy, this week, and I think a, a huge part of my ministry this week was to them. And I sat around their dinner, dinner table for an hour and a half, two hours each night, just talking to them about the hardships that they face uh, weekly. Um, their oldest son uh, turned 15 last week when I was there. A uh, precious young man, his name is Jude, but he's, he's autistic and nonverbal. And uh, he's grown up into a strong man. And a lot of times he, he um, for, for whatever reason... You know he loses control, and they've got four other kids. Uh, they've got kids that adopted kids, kids with needs, and man, life is tough. Life is hard, so hard that that um, I knew this going in. It wasn't news that was broken to me there, but they're coming home from the mission field. Uh, they the needs of their family have to be trumped by the needs of the uh, the, the needs of the mission or trumped by the needs of their family, and so man, they, it's very clear that they need to come home. It's what's best for their family, and so. We sat there and kind of debriefed all the different things that they're going through and have gone through. And, and, and we sat there and we walked through how hard it is to be in a place that's not your culture. Man, when I would run, go running, uh, um, everybody's looking at you, everybody's staring at you, and they look at me and they go, Azunga, which means white man. And they kind of laugh, and kids would run beside me, and people laugh at me. But when Stacy goes out, when Stacy goes running, that's not the look that she gets at all, right? It's, it's maybe they laugh at, a, laugh at a man, but that's not how they look at a woman. And so even fitting in in the, the culture and being there, there's things that are, that are hard about it. There's things that are hard when, you know, when you've uprooted your support system, when you're living in a culture that doesn't understand you, that thinks you're an, an outsider, it's not—it's not easy. You know, look at cross-cultural missions and go, "Oh man, planting churches in North America—that's easy." Well, that'd be a lie too, because planting churches, though it's not cross-cultural, there's there's a there's something hard about planting churches. And I look at our team that's in Durango, and I look at some of the stuff that they've gone through and the battles that they. Have to fight it reminds me of the early days here when we planted a little over five years ago. And you're going, why would anybody do this? Why would why would Josh and Stacy pack up their their family of seven and move across the other side of the world? Why would people pack up their comfortable life and and go to the go to the 10:40 window to go to dangerous places? Why would somebody leave and move to? To start something new, to take a risk. You know that when you plant a church, there's basically a 90% failure rate. Who who signs up for something with a 90% failure rate? Why would we do it? Well, it's pretty simple actually. Because Jesus said so. Because the one who has all the authority said so. Today, as we open up God's Word, this is what I want you to see. This is the big truth that I want you to see. And notice that this is a line from the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. Last week, uh, Brandon um, preached the, the story of the triumphal entry. Uh, The entry into um, Jerusalem. This is Jesus' last week of life. What we read today, verses 45 and 46, we, we see from the other Gospels, it's pretty clear, this happened on Monday. The other verses we'll read, 47 through 2018, happen on Tuesday. And as he's challenged, as they've had this triumphal entry and people have cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who's come in the name of the Lord. As they've quoted Psalm 118, um, what we see is that the leaders, the scribes, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, the elders, they do not like what is happening because their authority is being challenged. So this is a long story. I want you to put your eyes on the text. I want you to follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible and take your mind and put it on the story as we read it, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was this the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it uh, with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered. They did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell them, tell the people this parable. A man Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that it is written? The stone that the builders are rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. All right, so let's jump back up to 45 and let's begin to take this apart. And so. He enters the temple, he's come into Jerusalem, he's come down the Temple Mount there, he's entered Jerusalem, and he walks up to the temple, and it says, they drive out those who sold. Now, I'll explain that further in a minute, what, what was going on here, what does that mean that he drove out those who sold? He drives out those who sold, he takes this action, and then he says, it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be a house of prayer, in Jeremiah seven eleven but you have made it a den of robbers. These were two prophecies that had been fulfilled. And here he quotes it to him. This is like, this is like, he is waving his flag. He is telling that this is here, this is what I'm to do. And he's planting it in the ground. And so here's what I want you to see. Here's my first big idea. Is that Jesus has authority over how we worship. Jesus has authority over how we worship. Now, Mark and Matthew both tell this story, the same story at the same time, and they give a little more detail. Uh, Luke isn't interested into the the details here, but like there was a bit of a rumble here. And let's go read it. Let's go read 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 Mark. Uh, Mark eleven verse fifteen through seventeen. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of money. Uh, changers in the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So let me me explain what's happening here. So, uh, man... Uh, the, the, com- the commands of God were that the, the Jewish people were to come to Jerusalem three different times throughout the year. And when they would come, they were coming to uh, do a few different things. They would come certain weeks. This is Passover. This is Passover week. This is a time when they would come to celebrate the Passover. It happened other times. But they're coming. And what they're going to do when they're there is they're going to make sacrifices, and they're going to pay their temple tax. And so there had been a, there had been a temple tax in- instituted and so they're going to pay a temple tax and they're going to uh, make these sacrifices. Well, um, here's the thing. If you're coming from a long way away and, and you're coming to make this this sacrifice, you're coming to make your, uh, your, your tithe, if you will, you're bringing your first fruits. And so for this particular sacrifice, it needed to be um, a, a, a pair of turtle doves, uh, substituted for pigeons here. Uh, it needed to be... A, a lamb, a, a lamb, a spotless lamb, um, or it could be an oxen, and so that that was the things. And so, you know, basically, like within their own little kind of like seeker sensitive movement, like hey, let's make this easy for you. Um, you can just buy them here, right? What, what if people didn't have to travel with them, and we could just like bring in them? They could they could buy their their turtle doves here. we just get some pigeons and. Um, uh, maybe a, a sheep or an ox, and whatever they need to do, they can they can do it here. We'll make it we'll make it easier. They don't have to travel with it. Also, um, they, they had to pay their temple tax, and so since we li- kind of live in a Roman society, uh, guess what? Coins weren't um, allowed. You weren't allowed to pay the temple tax with. Do you know who was on the coin? We'll learn that next week. But uh, uh, render to Caesar what a Caesar's right. Caesar was on the coin, and. It was a graven image of a man, and you couldn't pay the temple tax with that graven image. So there were money changers; they would take your, they would take the Roman coin, and they would turn it into um, a, a coin that they could pay the temple tax with, a, a, a older form of payment. Um, last week, when I was when I was traveling, uh, everywhere, all three airports that I was in, I saw I saw this. You know, so I, I went out about in Frankfurt, Germany. For I had a long layover. I went exploring in Frankfurt. Had a brat. It was okay. It was all right. Um, Got a really funny story. I got a really good sermon illustration I've been holding on to later. Boom! It was a good one. Uh, happened to me. It's really good. Um, but I, on the way out, I, this is what I saw. I saw. I saw money changers. Right. And this is what they'll do. They'll, they would. They would take my dollars and they would turn them into euros. And when I came back, they would take my euros and turn them into American dollars. Right. Everybody's traveled internationally. You've seen that. So here's the deal. If I took hundred dollars and I I gave it to that money changer, uh, they would give me a certain amount of euros. And if I went out and I didn't spend a single euro and I came back and I gave, them, I gave them those euros back and changed it back, I would end up with about 80 American dollars. Like, what do you mean? How would that happen? Because they take a cut, right? That's how money changers work. They, they, they're processing, they're charging you some big processing fees. And so that's what was happening. And so at the temple in what is known as, is more than likely this was in what, what they call the Gentile court. The, in the Gentile court, something that had the original intents of purposes was that, man, God is going to make a way for the Gentiles to come to Christ, to come to faith, to believe in God, to be saved. And so, you know, you see God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, but he made a way for the Gentiles to be grafted in. And so if they were going to do it, they had to come through the Gentile court. Well, now, in order to make money... Uh, the, the the chief priest have figured out, hey, we're going to let these Gentiles come in, sell and make a profit, do all the dirty work, and we'll just charge them a fee, and it'll make us more money. And so uh, Jesus ain't having it. This is wrong. He's got authority over how this is worship. And he quotes this line and says, and he uses these two passages, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, Luke the last time he mentioned Jesus in the temple, Jesus was a boy. Remember the story where Jesus' parents like go off and they leave him, right? They leave him there, parenting 101, like don't leave your kid somewhere, like broke that, right? But this wasn't the last time Jesus was in the temple because in the book of John, pretty early on, we see that Jesus comes into the temple and he gives us the detail that he had a whip and he ran out the money changers and he flipped the table. So the first time, Jesus did this in the temple court. It was a warning. This time, he is coming in judgment. This is, this is judgment on them. What he's saying is like, you have messed it up and we are taking this from you. You're not going to do this here. What was the purpose in the temple? Anybody remember this? Let's think back. When did the temple first come to be? You go to the Old Testament, you'll see that with Moses, uh, there was a tabernacle. And they had the tabernacle, and they were moving around, and so the tabernacle had to move. But the tabernacle is where God met with His people. It's where the Holy Spirit dwelt. That's where people would come, and they would, they would, they would meet. That's where uh, they would meet with the Holy Spirit. That's where they would make their sacrifices, or meet with God. But then, when Solomon comes along, Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem. So there's no more tabernacle. Uh, There's the temple, and this is where God's spirit dwells. But what we see is that when Jesus comes, God comes in the flesh. And so Jesus, we see in the New Testament, is the new temple. He is God amongst his people. And so this is what happens is the the temple, the walking temple just walked into the old temple. And and he he prophesies this thing to them and, and basically says to them, you know, I'm going to tear this down, and in three days I will build it up. He makes this prophecy like, this is me, you're going to tear me down, you're going to, you're going to kill me, but in three days I'll rise. And also the second prophecy of, this is going to be tore down in AD 70. In 70, the temple was, was torn down. So what we see is that the, God is dwelling among them. And throughout all of time, from the tabernacle to the temple to him, God has had authority over how we worship. He's prescribed what we should do in worship. And they, they had messed it up. They had, it, it was corrupt. It's corrupt worship. Do you know? And I don't think there's that through, throughout all time, all periods of time, in all cultures, there have been cultures that worship. And there have been, it, been cultures that have worshiped God, worshiped Jesus, but yet have corrupted worship. I think today it's no different. I think that if Jesus came to church in Fort Collins today, that he'd flip over some tables. And I think we as a church ought to examine and ask the question, if Jesus walked into our church today, what tables would he flip over? Is there something here that he would look and go, you're supposed to be a people of prayer, but this is a a den of robbers. I guarantee you that if he walked into the churches in Fort Collins, just like most of America today, he would would be flipping tables. He would be tearing down LGBTQ flags. He'd be correcting the frozen chosen. He'd be walking into the churches that are worshiping the Roman emperor who think that the emperor, the, the president, is the one who can save us. I think he'd walk into churches that are preying on the poor, that are preaching a a false uh, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I think he'd walk into the lukewarm church, and I think he would flip tables. And so we need to ask the question, what tables would he flip? And if we can, we can look and we can take the regular principle, what does the Bible prescribe that we should do? What does God's authority say to us that we should do in worship? And if we find something in here that God says we should not do, that we should repent. We should just say this. God has authority over our worship. We want to worship God in spirit and truth how he says that he should. Now, there's so much room in Scripture that... In, in different cultures, and different expressions, right? You know, so many churches have had worship wars. And so they've argued over hymns or, or singing contemporary songs. Do you realize what they've done? They've argued over a song that was written in the 1950s versus 2000, right? When, when we often sing songs that are thousand a thousand years old. And so we need to make sure, like, are we, are we a word-centered church? Are we a church that prays? Are we a church that is faithful to gather? Do we lift holy hands? Are we doing the things that the Bible says that we ought to do as a church? We need to submit and say God has authority over our worship. Here's why. Verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. This is what he was doing in his his final week. He goes to the temple. He's making this bold move. The chief priest and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They wanted him dead. Their authority was being challenged, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Here's the next big idea: is that Jesus' words are authoritative. This is not a, a, a new thought. Uh, matter of fact, all the gospels say this. Luke said it in chapter 4, verse 32. He says this, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. That's that's different than these teachers. The, the the other teachers who were teaching and their words had no authority. They had no weight to them. They weren't authoritative. And so Jesus' words had power to them. They had, they had meaning. His word is authoritative. So we should look and go, man... Uh, are his words authoritative? If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, if he breathed breath into the earth, if he spoke us into existence, then his words have authority. Some of you may be, may, may be here today and, and, and you know, you're know you here out of habit, routine, somebody drugged you here, um, whatever whatever the reason is, but you struggle with the authority of Jesus' words, I have a challenge for you. Read one of the Gospels. Pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I, I would suggest John. We've been in Luke. Matthew's long. Mark's kind of in the middle. I'd go with John. Pick the book of John and read it. And hear what, what Jesus is te- what teaches and, and, and ask God. Just pray this prayer. God, if this is real, show this to me. If, if you have authority in your words, God, reveal, that you, reveal the authority of your words to me. Because this is what I think you'll find. I think you'll find that what Jesus taught will change your life. That it's changed the world and that it'll change your life. Here's something else that I believe. Paul said, all scripture, he told Timothy this, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for, uh, for rebuke, for correct, for training in righteousness. I believe that the whole of the Bible is authoritative. I believe it's all God's word inspired uh, through the different authors, the prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think that Jesus, when we see Jesus' example, Jesus so often leans back into the Old Testament. He makes the Old Testament come to life in the New Testament. And so, uh, in Jesus' coming, he didn't do away with the Old Testament, but we understand the Old Testament through the New Testament. And so, that this is authoritative. And so, if this says something is bad, we as people who say we believe in Jesus ought to go, that's bad. If he says that's not good for us, we should go, Facts, not good for us, right? If he says we should do that, I believe we should do that. And so if I'm going, okay, he says to love my enemy, but I really don't want to love my enemy. He says I should forgive, but I really don't want to forgive. I think he's right. These words are authoritative. They're right. They're they're good. I think we should submit to them. And so I just challenge you, pick up the Bible, read it. Verse 20, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority? Now, you can, you can hear their motive. You don't have to read into this to hear their motive. They do not like what they're saying. So they're saying, you know, who died and made you in charge? That's what they're saying. Who died and made you in charge? Who do you think you are coming up in here doing that? How do you get to run them out? How do you get to preach these things? So Jesus, being Jesus, he knows what they're thinking. And so he does what he so often does is he answers his question with a question. And he says this to them. I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So the baptism of John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, now beheaded, Right? He's now been a prophet that has been killed. Um, was it from heaven? And so they pull aside, they have a side conversation, and they discussed it with one another. They said, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Because obviously they didn't believe John. John had prophesied in his coming. He had told him the Messiah's coming. He had told him who Jesus was. Right. So why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was... A prophet. So here's their answer. We don't know where they came from. It was an an intellectually dishonest answer. Because they didn't believe it, right? So this was was them curving it to to keep the people at bay and to keep power. And so Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so here's my next big idea that I want to share with you. Worldly leaders have no authority over Jesus. Worldly leaders have no authority over Jesus. That The council that came forth, it was known as the Sanhedrin council. It was the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It was made up of Israelite Pharisees and Israelite Sadducees. And so these were the men who were in control. These were the men who had power. And what is clear here is that they feared man but had no fear of God. They feared man. They didn't want to make make them upset if they answered wrong. And the people, they're like, well, they might stone us. But they had no fear of God. They were willing to do whatever they must do to stay in power. And I'll tell you this, man. If you examine worldly leaders today, this is what they do. They will appease the people. They will say, what they won't think they want their people to do to, to keep their constituents uh, pleased, to keep those who, who would keep them in power pleased. And our world today makes a lot, our leaders make a lot of decisions. They do a lot of things that are displeasing to God. and they have no authority over Jesus. They'll never have any authority over Jesus and never never have. And he did not. Jesus did not bow down to the worldly leaders because he, Is Lord Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That every leader that is is in a position of worldly power, God is the one who put them there. And though they may rebel against him, they are there only because he allows. They have no authority over him. And so, here are these leaders that have no authority of him, that cannot control him that he is not scared of and this is what he says to them begin to tell the people the, uh, tell the people this parable and so a man goes out and he plants a vineyard and he plants this vineyard and he basically leases it out to tenants he brings tenants in so it's the idea of us that we may think of sharecropping right so you've got somebody who owns the land who plants the vineyard, but you have people who come in and farm it and take care of it for a profit, right? So they're able to make money, then the landowner makes money. But he goes away to a foreign land. Now, this may seem weird to us, but this was normal. There was a specific region of um, uh, Israel where this, this happened often. And so there are even rules around it. Like if he didn't visit within three years, the tenants got to keep it and all this stuff. And so a man plants a vineyard, and he lets the tenants... Uh, take care of it but when the the man who planted it uh, sent his servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed and so uh, the man the, the man who owns the the vineyard he does it again he sends another one and they do the same thing they they be, beat him and they sent him away empty-handed and he does it a third time and they, they he, he comes and they beat him and they send him away so the man goes I know what I'll do I'll send my only begotten son, my beloved son. That's what it says, my beloved son. And they send his beloved son, and at this point they go, Okay, if we beat him and we kill him, we've taken away the heir, and the vineyard can be ours. So they take and they kill the tenant. And so, this is what Jesus said. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to other. He will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Do you think that's what would happen if if I was I was the man and that was my son? Why, yes, that's exactly what I would do. And so let me let me explain this to you. Uh, this is very 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 simple parable. God is the one who planted and owns the vineyard. Uh, the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish people, are the tenants. They're the ones who are, are, are there, are supposed to be taking care of the vineyard. The servants that go and check on the, the crop, there are the prophets. So, these, these are the prophets. This is uh, uh, Malachi, and Zechariah, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and these are all ended up in death these all were were they, they came to the, the, the Jewish people and the Jewish people did exactly what he's saying here the servants are the prophet and Jesus is the son. Jesus is the son so this is a, a very simple parable and he's he's putting this forward to him and when he tells it to him he says this uh, when he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others he's saying to the, he's saying to the, the Jewish leaders, God is coming, and he's taking this vineyard away from you, the Jewish people, and he's giving it to the Gentiles. And they say, surely not. Now, right in the middle of this, I want you to see something. Here's the next big idea. Jesus died for those who would kill him. That even in the middle of, we're we're in the middle of God's judgment and God's wrath on these leaders. That he was still patient and kind and merciful and gracious. That they still had the opportunity to repent. And some of them would actually repent and believe. Some of these people would come to faith after the resurrection. And so Jesus, not scared of those who had authority, looks at them and he says, he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here's the next big idea. You will either submit to the authority of Jesus or be crushed by the authority of Jesus. Man, we, we look at that story we see them unwilling to submit to the authority of Jesus. they the, the question is authority. They're unwilling to submit to the authority. But God is gracious in this moment because we do not have to be crushed. We can, we can run to the cornerstone. We can build our life on the cornerstone. The good news of the gospel is this, that while we were rebellious, while we had sin in our hearts, while we hated Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That That while we, we were rebellion to him, he rescued us. That he took on our sin, our punishment, our shame, and that those who would believe, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, his beloved son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That, that you can be saved. There's a choice. You have a choice to make. You will either submit to him, or you will reject him. You either submit to his authority and you will say he was Lord. Or you will say, no, I'm the one who has the authority. I'm the one in his control. And I'll just warn you. The teaching of Jesus say this. You will be crushed. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so today, let me encourage you, man. If, if you have a heart hardened towards God today, repent turn to the Lord, believe and be saved. If you're in the room today and you go, that's me. I've repented, I've turned from the Lord, I've I've believed, I've been saved, then this is what you ought to do. The the last big idea that I have today is that if we submit ourselves to Jesus' authority, we will go and do as he has commanded us. If we've truly submitted ourselves to Jesus' authority, we're going to obey his commands. Isn't that simple? If you've submitted yourself to Jesus and you've said he's Lord, you're going to submit to his commands. Jesus said, love the Lord your God. What are the, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to follow the commands of Christ, the others of Christ, to love one another, to care for, for one another. You're going to follow the commands to gather for worship, to, to pray, to to read his word, to be in the scriptures, right? You're gonna, you're gonna follow it in, in, in your generosity and your, your giving, your ministry, your caring for the orphan, uh, the widow, caring for the sojourner in the strange land. You're gonna follow those commands. You're gonna follow the command that, that says, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore into all the nations, making disciples followers of Christ, learners. We 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 say in our church that a, a disciple is a radical reproducing lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. That's the characteristics of a disciple. That we would be that and we would go and make that. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he tells his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That his authority says to us that you're going to be a missionary people. That you're going to be a people of my name. A people who are my witness. A people who proclaim my word. That if we submit ourselves to Jesus, we're going to be that. We're going to be a, a, a people that obey his commands. Lord, let us be a church that submits to your authority. Father, we love you and we praise you and I thank you for your word. And Lord, I believe that it is authoritative. And so Lord, I pray That we would submit to you. That we would submit to your authority. That we wouldn't try to do things in our own authority or in our own power. But we would look to your word. Lord, I I pray that we would be people who look to your word and accept it as truth. That we don't go through picking out the things that we like and don't like. That we would look to it, we would seek to understand it, it would seek its counsel. We seek it as truth, Lord, that we would be a people that say your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That we would hide your word in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. Lord, today I pray that today would be a day of salvation. That today that you would move in works and hearts of people in this room, and that they would submit to you as Lord, that they would submit under your authority. And Lord, I pray that it would be a day of obedience for your people. That we would follow your commands. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.